There are a few times in scripture where God hands down a death sentence for what we might otherwise consider a somewhat minor infraction. You might view the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 as one such story. Did they really have to die for what they did? But what if a careful theological investigation of this double death turned up a whole new perspective on what happened that day? Thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Today, we continue our study of the book of Acts by looking at a curious story in chapter 5 of two people that drop dead right in front of the Apostle Peter. But before we get into our investigation of that, I'd like to give a quick recap of the swim challenge in which I took part this last month. The goal for the Stop Soldier Suicide social media challenge was 25 miles. And I'm happy to say that I thought I finished the month having completed 43 miles. But after my last swim, I realized that the whole month I had been swimming 1,800 yards and considering that a mile. But a mile is actually 1,760 yards. And it turns out that the additional 40 yards I swam for every mile during the month of June, along with a random two-lap warm-up on my last day, added an additional mile to my total. So last month, I actually swam 44 miles. And I like to visualize things like on a map. So that's the equivalent of swimming from where I live in Salem, Oregon, along I-5 up to the Moda Center in Portland where the Blazers play basketball. And needless to say, that's more than I usually swim in a month. But it's all for a good cause. And in the last episode, I posted an excerpt from my Rethinking Rest audiobook. And for those of you who are willing to fill out the feedback form at RethinkingRest.com, I'll increase my donation to the Stop Soldier Suicide Organization. It's free to you. And the feedback will help me as I continue to record the audiobook version of the Rethinking Rest book. So that's all for the announcements for today. So let's jump into Acts chapter 5 and see if we can figure out what's going on with this strange couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And let's just start by reminding ourselves of the storyline. These are the days of the early church. The majority of Christ followers seem to be congregated in Jerusalem. And to help fund that new movement, this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property and donate a portion of the proceeds to the church. The problem is, they told the apostles that they were donating all the proceeds from the sale, but they kept back money for themselves. Well, that creates a problem. Peter confronts Ananias with the situation, concluding that they had not just lied to those in the church, but they had actually lied to God. And then, the killings happen. Acts 5.5 reads, As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And the implication is that God killed him right there on the spot. Because the same thing happens to his wife when she shows up at church. She's charged with the same crime of putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. And the text says that immediately she fell at Peter's feet and died. And depending on your view of God— you might think this is more like a double homicide, like God didn't have the right to carry out these killings. But the text suggests otherwise. Then it says in verse 11, And a great fear came over the whole church, and over all who heard of these things. And that makes sense. 
you would think something like this would really squelch church growth. <laughs> to have two of your members drop dead for lying about how much they tithed. But interestingly enough, it seems to have had the opposite effect because just three verses later in verse 14, it suggests that multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So what's going on in this passage? How are we supposed to read stories like this and make any sense of them? While some people, and you might be one of them, might just conclude that this passage is here just to teach us that we're not supposed to make God mad. But that conclusion just doesn't seem to be an appropriate takeaway from such a dramatic story. So, what do I do? Whenever I read something in the Bible, and it just seems weird, and I'll admit, this story seems a little weird to me. So when that happens, I've come to assume that there's probably something else going on that I'm just not picking up. I conclude there must have been something else in the original setting, in the original culture, that I'm missing with my 21st century perspective. And then I go on a search to see what missing element or elements there might be. So in this case, let's begin a theological investigation and try and solve the strange double killing of Ananias and Sapphira. One of the first questions I ask when I come across something weird in Scripture is this. Does that sound familiar at all? Is there anything in the biblical text that reminds me even remotely of what I'm reading here? And in this case, it's God handing down a death sentence for someone for something they did. And luckily, or maybe that's not the way to say it, maybe unfortunately, yes, that does sound somewhat familiar. In fact, there's a few stories in the Old Testament that come to mind. So let's examine a few of these stories just to see if they can shed any light on our story in Acts chapter 5. So first, I'm going to take you back to a story in Joshua chapter 7. It concerns the events just after the infamous Battle of Jericho, where the Israelites marched around the city and then God caused the walls of the city to fall down. You know the song, and most of you probably grew up watching the VeggieTales version of this. And while you might be familiar with that story, few people know what happened next. The Israelites moved on in their conquest of the land to a city called Ai, and they are defeated, and the Israelites fled from the battle. And it's really confusing because of the great victory God had just given them at Jericho. But when Joshua asks the Lord what's going on, God tells him that Israel has sinned, and he says, They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, he says, they have also put them among their own things. Well, God's talking about what happened at Jericho. God had said that the Israelites were not to take any of the spoils from that city, but someone had. It was a man named Achan. And in a dramatic, reality TV-type way, the tribe of Judah was brought forth. Then a certain family from within that tribe was identified. And then Achan was identified from within that household as the man who had sinned. And he confessed the whole thing. 
He says that when he saw the spoils of Jericho, he coveted them and took them and buried them inside his tent. Well, they brought the spoils out. And as a 21st century reader, I'm thinking, whew, I'm glad that ended well. But that's not the end of the story. Because then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah. They took the silver, the mantle that he had taken, the bar of gold. They took his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And I love that description every time it happens in Scripture just to clarify how they were getting stoned. And it says that they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. It's meant to bring on the picture of the destruction that happened to those that lived in Jericho under the ban. It's suggesting that Achan has become a part of that ban. And while that's not exactly how I would have probably ended the story, that is the story. And While the circumstances are different, the story does seem somewhat familiar. It sounds a bit like the story in Acts chapter 5. It involves deceit, it involves improper actions involving money, the people are killed, and they are buried. And I think there's one important statement, one clue that might give us some insight into what's going on here. So let's focus on that right now. It's in Joshua 7, 11, where God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. The dramatically weird ending to the Achan story had something to do with breaking a covenant with God. And that's interesting because in the New Testament, the church is a part of a new covenant with that same God. So could it be that the common thread in these two stories is about breaking a covenant? While we're in the Old Testament, there are a few more stories that seem familiar, and I'd like to quickly just mention them now. One of them is from Leviticus, and the other two are from the book of Numbers. First, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. It's a very quick mention, but there are two sons of Aaron. Now, who's Aaron? Aaron is Moses' brother. And he has two sons. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. I absolutely love these names. And Aaron was a priest, which means that the two sons were as well. And one of the jobs that God had given to the priesthood was a prescription on a certain way to burn incense in the tabernacle. Specifically, the fire to burn the incense was to come from the coals of the altar just outside the tabernacle. That's found in Leviticus 16.12. This tabernacle, it was an integrated system of symbolism that describes things about how God operates. And it's these two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who evidently brought fire of their own making from outside the system that God had prescribed. It's called strange fire. And when they introduced their strange fire into the system, the Bible says fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And although it's a quick story, 
the circumstances described do seem to suggest that it has something to do with the breaking of a covenant, the rules and the regulations that God has set up for proper order and function within a system. Well, if we make our way into the book of Numbers, we we read about two more death sentences in that book. So first, if we just turn over to Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 32, we're going to go through verse 41 is where the story is found. This story is told about something that happened after the Ten Commandments had been given to the people. It was one Sabbath day that a man went out to gather wood. And from our context, while that doesn't seem very serious at all, the Sabbath commandment in the Old Testament forbade this type of work. The Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of the rest that Adam and Eve had in the garden before they sinned. So it was on the Sabbath where the people agreed to live the way God commanded one day a week, as opposed to choosing their own function and trying to figure out their own order for how things should be done. So this guy is gathering wood and he gets caught. And the Lord says to stone him (laughs) with stones. (laughs) And they did. And interestingly, it's after this episode that God instructs the people to wear tassels on their garments. And I'm not sure if you've ever had a garment with tassels, uh, maybe like long fringe if you're old enough. If you have clothing with tassels, every time you move, those tassels bang up against you and remind you that they are there. And God said, let these tassels be a reminder of the function and order that God has established. Specifically, Numbers 15.39 says, It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow your own heart and your own eyes, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. So the death sentence for this man, it was just out gathering wood. In its original context, it was a harsh and specific reminder of God's established order under covenant rule. And if you just keep reading in Numbers, the very next chapter, Numbers chapter 16, tells the story of Korah, who was a Levite. And that's important, again, because the Levites are the priestly tribe. They're the ones that are regulating the order and function that God has given to the people of Israel through his covenant. So Korah was a Levite, and he challenged Moses and Aaron's authority, the authority that God had given them. And again, in a very dramatic scene, the ground under Korah and his dissenters split open and swallowed them up, their households and their possessions, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And then it says, fire came down from the Lord and consumed another 250 men who had offered incense on behalf of Korah. So I think there's a theme we see in some of these biblical stories. They are examples of the first peoples of a new generation that tested a covenant with God. And they are dealt with very harshly. And it's also important to note that this isn't the response for everyone. But there seems to be an example set for the first ones that choose to step outside God's newly established function and order. And although these may seem like harsh responses by a loving God to the people that follow that God, Let me just restate it this way regarding, let's say, the guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. So a man who is supposed to be resting, and we can understand rest, not just as a physical rest, that was just the outward expression of an inward truth, but rest really is the choosing to live within God's established order, 
choosing not to try and create that order in and of yourself, in other words. It's that guy who's supposed to be resting within God's creative order, who decides not to follow God's commandment, but instead goes out and does what he wants to do, and the penalty is death. Now, let me just ask the original question again. Does that sound familiar at all? Well, it should. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. It was there that humanity was given a place to be and a thing to do, and then they decided to step outside of that thing to do. And what was the penalty? It was death. So the link for all these stories really goes back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God's response is the same for Adam and Eve. He said, for in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And it's this guy back in Numbers 15 that becomes a very vivid reminder of that fact, that the world we're living in, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And let's also point out that not everyone who broke the Sabbath was put to death. But this man, he was the first breaker of the covenant. And God dealt with him harshly to make a point. And what's the point? The penalty for stepping outside the covenant with God is death. That's the picture that's been communicated in the larger theme. And ultimately, it's an acknowledgement that there is a God-established function and order to this creation. And when we attempt to create our own version of functional order, things don't work out the way they were originally intended. So, All of these examples, Adam and Eve, the Sabbath breaker guy, Korah, Nadab and Abihu, Achan, and yes, Ananias and Sapphira, they're all very vivid and rapid examples of our problem. Their stories of death are supposed to remind us that our rebellion has a similar path. And it's a problem we can't solve on our own. And whether we die now in a sudden dramatic fashion or later at a ripe old age, the result is the same. It is only within God's order and function that a solution to our problem is offered. And when we find our God-given place to be and thing to do, that's when we experience the true rest that God offers. So before we close today's episode, I would like to make a few comments on a bigger theme that I haven't mentioned yet out of the book of Acts. And based on what we've talked about today, this may begin to make a little more sense than it would have if I had mentioned it earlier. So much has been written uh, in the New Testament and in commentaries after the New Testament about how Jesus is one like Moses, but that he's one better than Moses. He does uh, greater things than Moses. But there is an emphasis that shows that he is a Moses-type character. And what do I mean by that? Uh, In the way that he leads a new exodus for God's people out of a place of slavery. Uh, Moses brought them out of Egypt, but Jesus is bringing people out of the condition of slavery to sin. And as Moses led his people to a promised land, he wasn't able to get them into the promised land, but he was leading them toward a place that God had promised. In a similar way, in the New Testament, Jesus is leading us out of the slavery to sin into a new land, a, a promised land in the hereafter. 
And so if that is the case, and again, a lot of people have written on this and mentioned it in commentaries, but if that is the case, if Jesus is the one who is greater than Moses, then in the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles are in the position of the Old Testament Joshua. If you remember, Joshua is the one that took over after Moses passed away. And it was Joshua that led the next generation into the land of promise. He took them further on their journey. And if this typology, this, this example of an Old Testament story between Moses and Joshua and people coming out of slavery is being rehashed, it's being retold in a new way in the New Testament, we would expect to see other similarities. And we do. For instance, when Joshua took over after Moses, what we saw from Joshua was that he was doing things like Moses did. Moses had laid his hands on Joshua, had commissioned him. And one of the first things that we see Joshua do is he organizes and brings the Israelites through the Jordan River. And it's a dramatic scene that the Jordan River parts before them and they pass through. We're supposed to be seeing Joshua as continuing the ministry of Moses in that way. And if in the New Testament we are seeing this uh, retold, the apostles do signs and wonders that Jesus did. In fact, in John 14, 12, Jesus himself said, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. And we see that play out as the apostles continue the work that Jesus had started, continue leading God's people into a new promised land. So just a couple other things. Jerusalem plays really a couple different roles. First, early in Jesus's life, Jerusalem is the place that he flees, and he actually leaves Jerusalem to go to Egypt, which is just a crazy way to flip the Old Testament story of people coming out of Egypt to go to the promised land. Here, early in Jesus's life, we've got Jesus leaving the promised land to go to Egypt, a place of safety meaning that the promised land into which Jesus was born was like an Egypt. It was not a safe place. And later in the typology here, what we see is that Jerusalem becomes sort of like Jericho, a city of conquest. And just like Achan took the spoils from the city in the Old Testament, Ananias and Sapphira here in the city of Jerusalem, shortly after the apostles take over, they suffer the same fate as Achan. And later, we haven't gotten there yet in the story, but Saul of Tarsus will step in. Saul, who's converted and joins the people of God outside the city of conquest, he fulfills the role of Rahab in the Old Testament story, a woman who was within the city under the ban, but who is protected under the covenant given by Joshua. So I've talked about Luke as just a brilliant author in the past. And by mentioning this, I just, I guess, want to give a different perspective on how he might be working behind the scenes to retell a story that was familiar familiar to his original audience, much more familiar to them than it is to us. But in so doing, when his original audience was reading through the book of Acts, they would have been saying to themselves, doesn't that sound a little familiar? The way this is told, doesn't this sound like part of our history? It's continuing an ongoing story of God working in the world to bring function and order back to a situation that had been lost way back in the Garden of Eden. And one of the ways that Luke does that is by bringing in reminders from earlier in the same story about how God had not abandoned his people, but had worked to bring function and order back into their society. 
Well, that's all I've got for this episode. So next time you read something in the Bible that just doesn't sound right, and that's maybe from our modern setting, our perspective, let me just suggest that there's likely something going on, some other context that was readily apparent to the original audience that isn't as obvious in our modern setting. And when that happens, our job is to begin again the process of rethinking what we thought we already knew about the Bible. In the next episode, we'll look a little more closely at the circumstances that lead up to Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7. Thanks again for listening. And, oh, if you have a chance, I mean, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really appreciate it if you'd rate, review, or recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm -hmm.